of one meeting. All right. Uh, our New Testament reading this morning comes from Romans chapter 11. I'm going to read the first 10 verses. And they sound like this. I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace, but... If it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says... Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight for you are our rock and our redeemer. So this is the first Sunday of 2019, which means that I was not in the pulpit last Sunday. I I always take off the Sunday after Christmas. But because I was out of the pulpit last week, I want to offer two sermons this week. And to tell you the truth, these two sermons are not really related to each other, but a number of conversations that I've been having uh, in the past while uh, are prompting me uh, in this direction. So first I want to talk about money, and I want to talk about work, which is how we get money, and I want to talk about the biblical attitude toward money and work. And then, second, I want to talk about grace. I want to talk about God's grace, which has absolutely nothing to do with work and money. Okay? So two separate sermons. So we'll begin with money. Here at HVPC, we do not talk much about money. If you have a good job and a good income, you don't flaunt it. If your job is humble and your income is modest, you don't cry about it. Certainly from this pulpit, you won't hear the so-called prosperity gospel You won't hear any health and wealth preaching at HVPC. I will never tell you that if you give all your money to the church, that God will open up the floodgates of heaven and make you rich. We don't talk about money that way because that's not how the Bible talks about money. Now, here is something that the Bible says about money. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. 
John D. Rockefeller was once asked, how much money is enough money? And he replied, just a little bit more. If you have a hundred dollars, you think things will be really grand if you just had a hundred and ten. And if you have a hundred and a hundred million dollars, you think things would be a little easier if you just had a hundred and ten million dollars. How much is enough? Just a little bit more. No wonder scripture warns against the lure of money. In Hebrews, we read, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Everyone wants happiness. Everyone wants contentment. But so often we think that we will be happy and content if we have just a little bit more money. We think we'll be happy when we get that next promotion or the bigger job. We think we'll be happy when our next raise comes in. But the Bible says just the opposite. The Bible tells us to begin with being content with whatever we already have. If you have $100, be content. If you have $100 million, be content. Because when you're content with what you have, you are free. You're free of compulsion. Free of compulsion to acquire more money. Perhaps the longest teaching on money that we find in Scripture comes in 1 Timothy chapter 6, which begins with a warning to the church about false teachers who link wealth with righteousness. Right from the very beginning, right in the very first century of the church, there were already people preaching the prosperity gospel. There were already people viewing the church as a way to make money. Paul talks about this quite a bit. Paul tells us that these false teachers think that godliness is a means to financial gain. What we see here are... Whoops. So normally I always print my sermon on one side and I'm on two sided. So if there's like a gap in the logic... Tell me to turn the page. Godliness is a good thing, of course, but godliness is good not because it puts money into our pocket. Godliness is good because it pleases God. Sometimes godly behavior is actually going to cost us money. And we all know that there are plenty of times when ungodly people get rich. Those are the plain facts of life. But regarding the financial outcome, godliness is always, but regardless of the financial outcome, godliness is always the right choice. Because godliness pleases God and because godliness means that we're living in the way that God designed us to live our lives, whatever our job may be. Godliness is good whether it leads to financial gain or financial loss, as sometimes it will. Paul writes, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. 
Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. What we see here are some serious warnings. Warnings about how the desire to be rich can entrap us and cause us to do stupid stuff. Sometimes so stupid that we even wander away from the faith. Jesus offers similar warnings. Jesus says, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. He says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. And to the rich young ruler, Jesus said, sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. So, let's tell the truth. It is easy to be casual about money if you have plenty in the bank. If a rich person tells you that money isn't important, maybe you shouldn't believe them or maybe you should ask them to give you their money because it's not so important. Jesus and Paul, however, were not rich. Well, Paul had seen both rich and poor in his life. In Philippians, Paul writes, I know what it is to be poor, and I know what it is to be rich. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry. While Scripture warns us against the love of money, it also promises that God will provide for His people everything that they need. Lately, there have has been a bit of a craze talking about Jehovah Jireh, which is Hebrew for God will provide. That phrase shows up three times in the Genesis 22 passage uh, that we read a little earlier in the service when Abraham's on Mount Moriah and he's getting ready to sacrifice his son Isaac. And when Isaac innocently asks his father, where's the lamb for the sacrifice? I mean, Isaac hasn't been clued in to what's going on here. Abraham answers, God will provide. Jehovah Jireh. In verse 14 we read, So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. All throughout the Old Testament. We have testimonies of God providing for His people, sometimes in remarkable and miraculous ways when they were in the wilderness, waterless. God provides them water out of a rock. When there was no food in Sinai, God provides manna and quail. When there was a great drought in the land, God fed Elijah and the widow lady that he was living with from a barrel of flour and a flask of oil that never ran out. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells his followers to not worry too much about the things that money can buy. He says, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after those things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom 
and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. God will provide Jehovah Jireh. Jesus tells his followers to ask God for the things that they need. It's right there in the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. That's a prayer about the basic necessities of life. On the one hand, the Bible warns us against taking money too seriously or spending all of our time and energy and intelligence and energy and creative juice pursuing money through work and more work. That love of money can lead to all kinds of evil and can even jeopardize our faith. But on the other hand, the Bible also promises that God will provide for us our daily bread, the things that we need to live life and to live in a way that's honoring to God. Okay, that's enough about money. Then let me talk about something that has nothing to do with money, and that's God's grace. In our reading from Romans 11, Paul uses a peculiar phrase. He writes, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. If you've been around For the earlier part of this sermon series through the book of Romans, you might recall that in chapters 9 through 11, the Apostle Paul wrestles with the big question about the Jews. Paul is a Jew, and the Jews are God's chosen people, and yet so many Jews did not receive Jesus as Messiah. What about them? Where do they fit into God's grand plan for the salvation of the world? Paul spends three whole chapters wrestling with this question, a question that is very personal for him because the Jews are his people, because they are his family. Many of the lessons that Paul draws about the Jews of his time apply in our time to people who were born into the church. Some people born into Christian families and raised in the church, are very similar to someone born into a Jewish family in Paul's day. And the bottom line is this, that it's a great benefit and a great blessing to be born into a God-fearing family, but ultimately each child must choose whether they want to be a part of the family of God. Just because our parents are Christian doesn't make us Christian. Today's passage raises again an issue that Paul raises several times in the letter to the Romans, namely the relationship between work and grace. Works are the things that we do. Grace is the stuff that God does. When it comes to our salvation, when it comes to being right with God, is it because of what we've done? Or is it because of what God has done. I trust you all know by now that the Bible teaches that we're saved by grace and not by human effort. There is, however, something in the human heart that just can't quite mm, believe that basic truth of the gospel. And so Paul keeps coming back to it again and again. Here's how Paul says it in Ephesians. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. 
It's the gift from God. It's not the result of your work so that no one may boast. Now saved means to be saved from God's wrath. The wrath which Romans 1 tells us is being poured out here is what Paul writes. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men and women who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. Now I want you to... Is that still up on the screen there? Yeah. Take a look at this passage. Notice the sin that provokes God. Notice what the sin is that causes God to want to pour out His wrath. I was watching a video this past week on YouTube, a video by the Reverend Dr. Joel Beakey, one of my professors at Reformed Theological Seminary. He was talking about his own conversion to Christ as a boy. Now, he was raised in a Christian family. He grew up in western Michigan, an area of the country so saturated with churches that it makes the south look like Sodom and Gomorrah. He was raised in a culture that supported biblical faith and he never knew a time when he didn't believe the truths of that biblical faith. In a way, he was like the Jews in Paul's time who believed the law and the prophets but had not yet received Christ. And Beaky in this video talks about that moment when he came under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Please remember that conviction always precedes conversion. He came under the conviction of the Holy Spirit about the sin in his own young life. Now what kind of sin could a boy raised in a Christian family in western Michigan possibly have on his conscience? Here's what he said, and I quote. He says, I realized that I had never not sinned. For one moment of my life. Because I had never loved God above all else. Because I had never loved my neighbor as myself. It's funny how we worry about the big sins. And you know which ones they are. Those are the ones that get you fired from your job. The ones that get you thrown into jail. The ones that are grounds for divorce. But when Jesus was asked about the greatest commandment, he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. How are you doing with that? How often do you worry about that? How often do we worry that someone might catch us? Not loving God with all that we are. But the young Joel Beakey felt the sting of conviction, the realization that while he knew a lot about God, while he believed the Bible word for word, he never for a moment loved God with every fiber of his being. And he was mortified. When Paul talks about the wrath of God being poured out, he doesn't mention the big sins that we carry around in our head in this culture. He mentions this one. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. They didn't worship Him. That's the failure to fulfill God's greatest command. And we all stand 
convicted of that sin. Which means we all stand under the wrath of God. Unless we've been saved. Which brings us back to the big question, how are we saved? Are we saved by our works? Are we saved because we actually honor God? Are we saved by trying to love God with our whole heart and soul and mind? Is that how we're saved? Are we saved by keeping this greatest commandment? The answer has to be no. Because if it were yes, no one would be saved. So thanks be to God, the gospel reveals a righteousness that is apart, that is separate from, that is different than keeping the law. If I loved God with my whole heart and soul and mind, I would not love myself as much as I do. If I loved God with my whole heart and soul and mind, I would not be motivated by pride and self-interest. I would not be so insistent upon my own worth and dignity. Now here's the sad truth. I could make a New Year's resolution. I could resolve to Put God first in 2019. I could make a New Year's resolution to love God above everything else. But you know what? I would fail. I wouldn't make it one day or one hour in that resolution. And so I cannot be right with God by my own works or by my own efforts. It just can't happen. It never will. But in the gospel, a righteousness apart from that effort, apart from that work, apart from that law is revealed. A righteousness by faith in Jesus Christ. And there is our hope. Paul says of the church, of those who are truly in Christ, he says there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if it is by grace, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Paul keeps coming back to this theme again and again because the human heart wants to do things in its own power. We really do want to work out our own salvation. We really do think that we're pretty good. There's something about grace that makes us nervous because grace is not in our power. And so we try to turn things that are pure grace into something that is the result of our effort or our intentions. We have to be reminded over and over again that if we are not right with God, it's, or if we are right with God, it's not because of something we've done. If we are right with God, it's not because we're better than the guy sitting to the left of us in the pew. If we're right with God, it's only because of something that God did toward us. One of the wonderful things about this doctrine of grace is that it causes all of the glory to go to God. If my salvation doesn't in any way depend on me, then I can't claim any of the credit and only God gets the honor. Jonathan Edwards said this, You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin 
that made it necessary. Let me read that again because it's rich. You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. God raises dead people to new life. Guess what, folks? Dead people don't do anything by themselves. God does that work in our lives. We cannot claim the credit. All the credit goes to Almighty God. All glory and honor goes to God because He alone is worthy. Now this morning we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We understand the Lord's Supper to be a visible Word of God. We understand it to be a sign and a seal of the promise that God has made to God's people. And in this meal we gather as the redeemed of Christ. As people who have been saved from the wrath of God, not by our own goodness, but simply through God's electing grace. We gather as brothers and sisters in Christ, and we remember and we reenact the Last Supper, at which Jesus presided with his disciples gathered all around him. Jesus was just hours away from being offered up as a sacrifice for our sins, Jesus, who had no sin, became sin for us on the cross so that we might have the righteousness of God by faith. We share this meal in response to Jesus' direct command that as often as we do this, we do it in memory of Him. As we approach this table this morning, we approach it, Not as a people who are worthy in our own right. None of us has earned a seat at this table. But we approach it as people who've been invited by God. In grace and in love. To share unimpeded fellowship with Him and with each other. I need to say that if you have any grievance against any brother or sister at HVPC, you need to... Get that right before you come to the table this morning. You need to examine yourself. You need to check the condition of your own heart before you receive this meal this morning. Each one of us needs to recognize our unworthiness and our need of God's grace. We need to recognize that God has called us and looked upon us with love and favor, inviting us to be members of the family of God. We need to trust All of God's promises as applying to us personally. When Jesus says, God so loved the world, we need to trust that as applying to us personally. When Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavily laden, and I will give you rest, we need to trust that as an offer given to us personally. When God says, I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. We need to trust that promise as applying to us personally. Now, by virtue of my ordination, I will preside at this table this morning in the name of Jesus. But I need to remind you that there is no person in this room who is a greater sinner than I am. Okay, So I don't preside in my own right. I have not loved God with my whole heart and soul and mind. And if you know me, you know that it only gets worse from there on. I don't stand before you in my righteousness. I stand here by God's grace in the righteousness of Christ. 
And you can do the same when you come to the table this morning. You can do the same. If you're unsure of where you stand with Christ this morning, I encourage you to allow the Holy Spirit to work in your heart today. If you hear Christ calling you to follow him, I encourage you to say, yes, Lord, I will follow you for the rest of my days. If you understand the gospel and hear God's call, I encourage you to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, trusting in God's grace alone, displayed on the cross to atone for the sins that you cannot repair. This table is a foretaste of the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, there will be no strife. There will be no division. People of every language and every tribe are going to be united in one body of Christ one day. Together, we remember God's amazing grace shown to us. Together, we look forward to that feast in the kingdom of God when Christ returns. We will be experiencing one day soon an endless celebration. A celebration in which we forget about ourselves because we're so captivated and so enraptured by the beauty of God. You're invited to this table this day. If it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Amen. The word of the Lord.